Well, thanks for having me back. You know, last week we talked about the birth of the church by the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is part two, Divine Energy part two. We're going to continue to talk about the, the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. It, it, the Holy Spirit being that supernatural energy that the church needed to, to come into being. Um, and we recalled amazing things happened, tongues of fire and blowing wind, and all the people could begin, these simple Galileans could speak in a language that they never had even been taught, and everybody around them heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ in their own language, and we learned that 3,000 or so came to, to follow Christ as a result of that amazing day in Pentecost. So today we're going to explore other ways, where did they go from here? Other ways that the Spirit stayed involved in the life of that community as they followed Jesus into the future. Um, and for without the Spirit, that day would have been just one of those kumbaya mountaintop experiences that would be over. They would not be able to survive. In fact, I grew up in the, in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican tradition, and uh, one of my favorite uh, theologians is N.T. Wright, and you're welcome to read about him. He used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, I believe, but he's, uh, he writes this, without God's spirit, there is nothing we can do that will count for God's kingdom. Without God's spirit, the church simply can't be the church. The spirit is given so that we, ordinary mortals, can ourselves be what Jesus himself was the means of God's kingdom going forward. The Spirit is given, in fact, so that the church can share in the life and the continuing work of Jesus himself now that he's gone into God's dimension, or heaven. Now, after the gift of languages came upon the disciples, we learned that there were 3,000 or so that were added to their number. So all of a sudden, this band of 100 or so that had gathered that first day of Pentecost, had blossomed into over 3,000 people. And they all began meeting as a community. Now, my guess is they couldn't all meet at the same time. I don't know how 3,000 of them would cram into one courtyard, but the idea was community started to be formed. So let's take a look at what happened every time they gathered. As we read in our text this morning and just kind of revisiting again, uh, we read that they... Here are the things that they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Keep those in mind. And the result was everybody was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I can't hear that enough. I love that because to me, this is what the well is, the community and the hospitality and the joy. And notice how the Spirit formed their community. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Looking at the word the fellowship for a minute, as we started off with the kids talking about this word koinonia, actually it's the Greek word that we have translated to fellowship. 
Fellowship can be kind of a simpy word, though, really, when you think about it. Um, We actually may kind of use it too lightly. This was actually the first time this word fellowship was used in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And it went on to be used probably 20 times. And the word in Greek is koinonia. We translate often fellowship. But here's a few characteristics of koinonia. Can you say that? Have you ever heard that word, anybody? Koinonia, right, I love it. First, Christian, the Christian koinonia, actually, that's an oxymoron. Koinonia is Christian. But koinonia involves, first of all, all kinds of people. You remember on Pentecost, every nation was represented on that day. We don't know how that happened, but every nation. So consequently, we have 3,000 new believers now who are from all over the place probably every language from every nation. There is a very diverse group of people. And if we look at Jesus, Jesus gathered and he broke bread with all kinds of people, didn't he? And they weren't all proper people, sinners and tax collectors and women and children and pagans and priests and rich and poor. And so we know that the Acts 2 church was very, very diverse. And if you go on and read the Bible and look into these cities where the gospel spread, Corinth and and Philippi, all of them were very diverse. They were not all the same kind of people. And so from the beginning, every nation represented in Pentecost. So these 3,000 people were practicing koinonia together, very different people. Then, to sort of expand on this meaning of koinonia, yes, it was very diverse. Paul used this same word, the the apostle later, as he spreads the gospel, to mean generous sharing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a verse that says, They will praise God because of your submission that's flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your sharing with them, the generosity of your sharing, he uses the word koinonia. He says, and the generosity or the koinonia that you have for all the others. So he talks about koinonia being sharing. And then he goes deeper into the word in Philippi, or in Philippians, as he writes to them. He says, he, he prays for himself that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing, and again he uses the word koinonia, and the koinonia of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Now that's an, that's an interesting use of the word koinonia. When we think of it as donuts and fellowship and fun, koinonia here implies that by the Spirit, the Christian community is connected to Christ's suffering. And that should lead to a radical and sacrificial, perhaps disrupting kind of generosity, one toward the other. When you think about Christ gave himself up for us. So this identification, the Christian community identifies with that sense of suffering. So Richard Rohr writes that this kind of fellowship is not about being obviously religious. It's about being quietly joyous and cooperative with this divine generosity that connects everything to everything, connects everybody to one another. So you see what I'm saying, that koinonia is more than just what we would call fellowship. Sadly, even in the church, it could be said that 
one of the greatest diseases we face is our profound and painful sense of disconnection. Within koinonia, we are connected. But even in the church, sometimes we can feel disconnected. Anybody? I know out there, we can feel disconnected from humanity. But koinonia, the well, what the well represents, this, this, this community and this hospitality and this joy, this deep koinonia reconnects us with God while we're here, reconnects us with ourselves. We're fully human when we know God, and, and, and to know God is to know ourselves. We have that connection. Also, we're connected with others, and eventually we're connected with the world in a new way. Shirley Guthrie, who is a theologian, I don't know whether you sung, you read his stuff, and I, oh, oh. Shirley is a guy, by the way. But I love his, and this would be a book I would commend to you, is his basic theology book. Hello. It's written for lay people, which, of course, when I started seminary, it was. But he writes this, To be a human being in God's image is to live in fellowship, not only with God, but with fellow human beings. If we were Paul using that word, saying that to be, uh, or to, to uh, in, in Acts, Luke, as he would write it, to be a human being in God's image is to live in koinonia, not only with God, but with fellow human beings. So, the Acts 2 koinonia church is more than some kumbaya moment. It's a fellowship that produces real and deep relationships where we can see signs and wonders among us. And I don't have the time nor you today to be able to share those, but I'm betting that you all have some signs and wonders that have happened to you. Brooke and I talked about it today. That we share with one another. The least of which, or I guess not the least of which, is being moved to share everything that we have in common. Now what is it we have in common as Christians? What do we have in common What? Somebody just said it. Christ Christ Jesus is our Savior. We have that in common. We don't even have, we're sitting here as believers. We don't even have to speak. We have this connection with one another by faith, right? We have that in common. What else do we have in common here? We have our joys and our sorrows, don't we? We have our money. We have our time. And as you read about the Acts 2 church, all that went into the bucket. All that went into the well, all that went in so that others in need could have that word of encouragement. Others would have that time that was needed for comfort. Others would have tangible needs. That was the Acts 2 church. Jeff Anderson is a social activist, and he writes this about the power of koinonia. Real power doesn't come from membership at the right church or denomination. Real power comes from a strong personal relationship with God and with encouragement and accountability coming from the body of believers, which is the community. Christians then care more about their community relationships than their 11 a.m. Sunday morning brunch reservation. That's koinonia. Biblical fellowship, and the Acts 2 church had koinonia. We also see that they were devoted, and I love that word devoted. Can you think about it? Devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
That could be a whole sermon on itself. Psalm 119 is all about the psalmist being devoted to the word of God, being devoted to the commandments, being devoted to the teaching from God's word. And that, this is a band of people that were devoted to that, to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles at that time were the twelve. We know that by now there were 3,000 followers of Christ, but we still have the so-called pillars who had been commissioned or responsible for, for the teaching. And what did they teach? Well, if you back up a little bit and read the speech, actually the first Bible lesson in the Bible is in Acts 2. You remember when everybody was babbling in languages and some people watching said, well, I must be drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, they are not drunk. Here's the deal. And he gives the first lesson that the apostles heard and the disciples heard that day. Men of Israel, listen to this. And he goes on to teach about Jesus, who's at the center of your well. That he, was, that, that he was accredited by God to them by miracles and signs and wonders of healing and raising the dead. That he was handed over to be nailed on a cross and killed. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And he, Peter goes on to say, and now sitting with the Father, not only does he have the Spirit, but he's poured it out on us and he's offered to us an invitation. So repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is what the disciples, the apostles taught. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the author of our salvation. That Jesus by faith in Christ's death and by his resurrection, we are saved. And, you know, they did ask as he's going on and on and on about Jesus, on and on and on about Jesus, all these people that were listening to this speech, listening to this teaching said, how can we be saved? And he goes on to say, repent, join us, come into our community and be one of us in him. This spirit-inspired teaching results in transformation, not just information. How many of us were raised in Sunday school and we got our little badges and pins for being able to recite this, that, or the other, and some of you have been around long enough that it was the Westminster Confession you memorized? But how transforming was just memorizing what you'd been taught. You see, spirit-led teaching in the Acts 2 church changed lives. It was transformational, not just educational. And sadly, through the ages, the church can get off base. We have, read all the confessions, read the church history. We can go off the ranch with our teaching, forgetting or denying even the lordship of Christ. We see it going on today, trivializing sin and therefore the need for a savior. Actually, Timothy warned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, which means in good times and bad. When people don't want to hear it, be prepared to preach it. Correct, rebuke, and encourage, and with great patience and careful instruction. 
For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they are going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their eyes away from the truth and turn aside to myths. On that, Acts 2 church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, and this church does too. The big green church here knows the good news of the gospel. Pastor Hope teaches in season and out. I'm sure you've heard a tough message or two, but also the good news as well. And you can count on her teaching and the teaching from this pulpit to be spirit-led and sound. And so we say yes to Jesus. We believe. We come here. Why do we need to hear the, the basics every week, though? Do we need to hear that again? Can you imagine every week, every day, the Acts 2 church gathered and heard this over and over and over. I think we need to hear it over and over because we're getting bombarded with a lot of other stuff. And to hear it over and over and over again reminds us of the good news, reminds us, warms us and kindles us again. And it also helps us be faithful to our calling because we will be asked, how can I be saved? If you're out there being the church, people are watching and they're going to want to know, well, how, how do you come to this hospitality, to this joy in this community? How do you know you're saved? And to hear it over and over again, we have the words through the Holy Spirit and through the teaching. There's power in them words. So fellowship or koinonia and teaching was evident, but also we see in this gathering of these followers this amazing worship. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, all the people. I love the way they put that together. The note that the text says everyone and all the believers and anyone worship together as they praise God together, and I love the part that each one was favored and honored. So just by being here together, praising the single God we have in Jesus Christ, we're honoring each other. We're favoring each other, and we're being favored by one another. It's interesting to think about what that means. I think it just means we enjoy each other when we're praising the Lord. There's no place for the sour, grumbling, dissatisfied worshiper. Joyful worship. When I taught the new member class at Venice Presbyterian Church, we had five weeks of new member classes, and one of them was on uh, VPC as a place to grow, and we used that as a time to talk about worship. And I had eight or ten points we talked about worship, but a few of them that are relevant, I think, to this Acts 2 church had to do with, we always invited people to get dressed for worship on the inside. So you come into worship prepared, realizing it's, it, it's, it's your heart, it's being open to one another. And we went on to talk about, before the call to worship, focus on why we're here, which is to glorify God, not to glorify the worship. And worship not being a performance and watched by spectators, but there was a participation involved. In fact, that's what we do when we gather. And the Acts 2 church, if you go read that, 
participation was at the bottom, uh, at the core of what they did. And true worship doesn't keep looking at its watch, even though you may have a few children who are antsy. Which says also that children in all ages are welcome in worship. And the styles of worship should not matter. And you are uh, blessed with three different types of worship services here, but it doesn't matter. Each of them are important as long as we're prepared for worship and walk through that door praising God. It's not about us. And then we share together in worship sacraments. Last week, we shared the Lord's Supper. And this text talked about how they had communion, the breaking of the bread, but later on talking about eating glad hearts in homes. But the breaking of the bread, there's some reference to the fact that they probably celebrated the Lord's Supper, remembering that night that Jesus was betrayed. Could that have been the first of what we now do in our communion as as an example? So we have this worship, we have this amazing fellowship, we have this teaching, and then we have another hallmark of the Christian community, and that is prayer. They devoted themselves to all these things, including prayer. They probably were, having been Jews, you know, they were used to praying multiple times a day together. They'd stop and pray, and they probably kept doing that. Praying, can you imagine, four or five times a day in corporate worship? And can you imagine, as you come together, where you've just squabbled over the color of the carpet, or you're just burdened by whether you're going to meet your budget, Or you come together wondering who the new elders are going to be or how you're going to pay your bills or are we going to fill in the blank. And they come together in worship and pray over all of that. They come together when they've had a squabble and they lay it down. And that time that we greet one another could be a time of reconciliation as well where you're actually restoring peace through prayer. Prayer is an essential part of koinonia. We can't forget prayer. And I just contend right now that these marks of koinonia and teaching and worship and prayer are so essential for the church today to be brought back to as the basics. We can have the best programs in the world, and we can have the, oh, and you have an amazing potluck. You're doing that really well. I hear you have a great potluck every year. All of that is important, but How we are being the church is essential today if we're going to reach the world for Christ to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. Because everybody around the church is watching how we live. If we were to be being the church inside these walls, doing the koinonia and the prayer and the work, and someone were to peek in to the side and watch us being the church here, what do you think they would see? What do you hope they would see? I have a... It was actually convicted by a book written by Dan Kinneman and Gabe Lyon. It's a book called Unchristian. And they did a survey of thousands of young people who are not in the church. They're either atheists or agnostics, or they're of other faiths, or they've fallen away... And they responded and wrote their opinion of us, of the church. Not necessarily this church, but the church. And they came out saying that they see the church as being judgmental, hypocritical, bigoted, irrelevant, legalistic, homophobic, grumpy, 
mean. That's how they see the church from the outside. Now, there are some that don't. There's a lot that love Jesus, but they just don't like church people. So when we're challenged to be the church, I think we should hearken back to Acts 2 and be reminded of what the Acts 2 church was all about because people of God, listen, there are people, those same people out there that are desperate for truth. And they're asking, maybe not explicitly, but they're asking, how can I be saved? Is there a heaven? Is God really real? What makes you so happy? They're asking you those questions. And they may not ask it to your face, but you can see it in their lives, that there's some desperation. It's a simple and profound question that they ask of us. What does it mean to be a Christian, basically, is what they're asking. What's so cool about being in the church? Well, we've been given the Holy Spirit's power and authority to answer that question. It's in Christ alone. And we can say it, because remember Pentecost, the word, we were given voice. But we can't just be a big mouth. We need also to rejoice and to love and to care, act, and it starts here. We have to also be focused on how the Holy Spirit manifests itself in every aspect of our lives, mine and yours. Because the next generation, maybe even friends and neighbors of yours and family, are watching. They're watching and they're listening. You should be so grateful, and I know that you are, that Kirkwood is a spirit-led church and is living into those marks of the church. Authentic koinonia, hospitality, joy, prayer, worship. So, with that in mind, be the church, hashtag, be the church. Whenever you gather here or outside these walls together. Because everybody out there will know we are Christians by our love. And think about what it would be like to have 3,000 be added to our numbers day by day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have found our way into this amazing, supernatural, incredible community that we call the church. We give you thanks for that first gathering of those thousands of believers and for their boldness through the Holy Spirit to speak the truth throughout the generations and to live and be the church so that we could be mm, here today. We pray this in your name. Amen.